0: Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs.
1: Hi there, Zach Twomley here from When Diplomacy Fails. You're about to listen to the latest episode of the Versailles anniversary project, episode 66 in fact, which is kind of crazy. Remember the good old days when there was one episode every single week? Well now there's about 10, so it seems. And it doesn't show any signs of slowing down anytime soon. As a regular listener to this show, you are well aware by now the best ways to support this podcast. You can simply tell somebody about it, that is by far the best way to help out. Spread the news of what Zach does every so often by talking to himself for a living about things that people don't really know all that much about. With a tagline like that, how can they possibly resist? If you're feeling generous though, or if you're feeling like you'd like to access even more content, then you should look no further than patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails. Currently, for $5 a month, you can access an hour of extra content every month. And that hour of extra content at the moment is looking at the Suez Crisis. If you're interested in the story of the Suez Crisis from several generations ago in 1956, then this is the best place to go. If you're curious, make sure you check out that episode we released a few episodes back, basically detailing what happened in each episode of the Suez Crisis. It's a great story, guys, and I've been told by several people who have paid up and accessed it that they really do enjoy it, and that the money goes a long way. In this day and age, $5 doesn't get you all that much, but with When Diplomacy Fails, it gets you an awful lot. In addition to this, in a week's time we'll be looking at, well, a Q&A for when diplomacy fails to celebrate our 7th birthday. I was about to say our 100th birthday because Versailles is so on my mind, but of course it's not 100 just yet. Make sure to send your questions my way. I did originally say that the 11th of May would be the deadline, but I'm feeling quite generous, so... Send them my way, and sure, if we don't have time, we don't have time, but perhaps there's a chance you'll be included. I've already got more than enough questions to start the episode, but I'm always open to having a few more. Alrighty guys, with telling people, with going to Patreon, and with sending questions my way and tuning in for that Q&A episode, you'll be doing your part to make sure that this podcast is spread across the podcast universe. Also, of course, by simply downloading it, by simply listening to it, or whatever you do, streaming it, what have you, I'm quite partial to Spotify at the moment for podcasts, which we are also on, in case you weren't aware, you are helping the algorithms of the world discover the fact that this podcast is good, which will hopefully make us show up in more places. Basically, I'm just super happy in general that you decided to take time out of your busy lives to listen to me right now. So thanks for doing that, and give yourself a big pat on the back that you're brave enough to delve into something as complex as the Versailles Anniversary project. We've been going for a long time now, and sure we're on the home stretch, but we're not there quite yet. There's still some important stuff to talk about, and today we delve into one of those forgotten chapters. So without any further ado, let's do further. You're listening to the Versailles Anniversary Project, episode 66. Hello and welcome history friends, patrons all, to episode 66 of the Versailles Anniversary Project. So in the last episode we somehow managed to squeeze almost an hour of content out of only two days in May, specifically the 8th to the 10th of that month. Today our detailed analysis continues, but with a focus on an actor and a cause which has been in the background of our narrative for some time. The Greek premiere... Eleftherios Venizelos, and his dreams of a greater Greek empire, straddling portions of Asia Minor, the Bosphorus, Macedonia, Albania, Bulgaria, the traditional Greek islands, and many other places besides. This empire took the shape of a kind of crescent moon gleaming over the Hellespont, linking Asia and Europe together, as it had been, Venizelos said, for a millennia, as Greeks roved and wandered all over these places, and Greek culture and language was the lingua franca of the region. And this region was, and still is to some extent, steeped in the rich history and culture of Greece. Pergamum, Ephesus, Halicarnassus, not to mention Troy, were Greek cities of ancient legend and history that straddled the coast of Asia Minor. Herodotus, the father of history, was said to have been born in the region, as was Hippocrates, the father of medicine. These two fathers were not the only parents of a Greek legacy. Many more legends besides, such as Jason and the Argonauts, who sailed to Georgia to receive the Golden Fleece, or Leander, who had drowned for love of hero. These were part and parcel of the Greek story of nationhood. The destiny of Greece seemed to demand a renaissance in culture, power and influence based on this past, and it was up to the Allies to determine exactly how just or accurate these claims were. The policies of the Big Three towards Greece led almost logically to a war between the Greeks and vanquished Turks. But at the head of the Greek cause was Venizelos, the cretian born former guerrilla with the brains and emotions to match. Uniquely among the smaller powers in the Paris Peace Conference, he was actually liked by those that he petitioned. And even those that disliked him, they felt this way out of a sense of fear. Fear that, with his incredible charm, Venizelos would entrap the Allies Into committing to something catastrophic. Whatever way you spin it, it seems fair to conclude that Venizelos was too charming for his own good, since he got what he wanted, only for it to cost Greece so dearly and painfully in the end. This story is a key part of the Paris Peace Conference, and I've been looking forward to telling it for some time. So without any further ado, I will now take you to a strange scene on the 7th of March 1919, where the American diplomat, war veteran, historian, and personal translator to the president, Stephen Bunsall, met with some very interesting characters, indeed. Three of the strangest-looking men wandered into my office yesterday morning, Stephen Bunsal wrote in his illuminating book, Suitors and Supplicants, The Small Powers at Versailles. Their dark, mysterious faces and their stealthy tread excited the suspicions of our guardian sailors, but soon they produced a letter from Venizelos which authenticated their mission. And what was this mission? Well, it was nothing less than to petition the American government on behalf of the Greek Diaspora. No, no, not that Greek Diaspora. No, not, not that one either. You see, these Greeks were from a forgotten portion of the Hellenic culture group, the so-called Euxine Pontus, better known in the Western world as Greeks living along the Black Sea. These ethnic Greeks came with a letter from Venizelos, the leader of the Greeks in and out of the mother country, with an unusually reserved request. Venizelos did not want the Black Sea Greeks brought into the Greek homeland, but simply for Stephen Bunsell to work his magic and try and find some means to help them. These unfortunate people, like so many others in spring 1919, were suffering from acute shortages in food and money, brought on by the war and the drawn-out negotiations which failed to end it. Their livelihoods were seasonal and depended upon industries that were vulnerable to disruption. Fishing and forestry and the dislocation of these industries during the war had had a profound effect upon them. Yet, unsurprisingly, while they were hungry and desperate and close to destitute, these men remained... ...proud Greeks who attempted to tell Bonsal all about their heritage and history... ...in the hope that, while arranging aid for them, he would achieve some bonus and unite them with their homeland. It was inconceivable to imagine a Greek empire stretching that far... ...but Bonsal still listened to the stories of these old Greeks... ...as he walked with them to meet the one American who might be able to help them with their food shortage problem... ...Herbert Hoover, the chairman of the American Food Administration who could serve as the deliverer of life for countries allied and enemy, victorious and vanquished. Herbert Hoover received us with his most ferocious glare, bunsall recorded, adding that his new Greek friends, while in the presence of Hoover, were all a-tremble, and my knees too were knocking together. In a quavering voice, one of them told their story in a sort of bastard Italian, the lingua franca of the Mediterranean, and I passed it on to Hoover as best as I could. He told how all navigation on the Black Sea had been arrested by the war conditions, and so no longer could their usual foodstuffs reach them from South Russia, and how outside Trezobond, Anatolian bandits were lurking, so that the peasants in the interior, the few who had any, did not dare to bring their produce to town. With what seemed like a contemptuous smile, Hoover listened, and then, just as I thought he was going to have us all thrown out through the open window by the side of his desk, he said, Tell them I'll feed them. They must be here tomorrow, sharp at nine, and we'll work out the details. Upon learning of his success in this venture of getting some kind of food support for these Pontic Greeks, Stephen Bunsall found that he had some new best friends. The delegation was so jubilantly excited that I dare not to leave them alone in the mazes of traffic outside, Bunsall recorded, adding... I walked them to a boulevard cafe and ordered drinks which I hoped would prove soothing. Several of their countrymen who were lurking in the background joined us and all burst out in pains of victory. They agreed that Mr. Hoover was the greatest man who had lived since Alexander and that I was evidently a favourite son of Hermes. I wished to hear something about the war as viewed from their distant standpoint and also about their relations with Mother Hellas and they were not at all loath to enlighten me. What followed was a frankly brilliant conversation, which helps to illustrate just how colourful these characters and conversations could sometimes be during the Paris Peace Conference, a fact which is hard to absorb sometimes if trawling through the daily minutes of the Council of Four doesn't excite you as much as it does me. Bonsal recorded the conversation. We too helped not a little in winning the war, one of them asserted. Of course, our war chariots of the Homeric days were the forerunners of the tanks. Soon they were telling me the story of the fate of their nation, alas, for so many centuries, submerged by the unspeakable Turks. We represent the oldest overseas Greek colony in the world, several centuries older than Marseille. Of course, to us the French port is a mere parvenu, they insisted. Our noble city of Trezabonde on the Black Sea, the Attic atmosphere of which none of the barbaric hordes have been able to destroy, should really be called Xenophonopolis. And this is why, when Xenophon brought his men back from the Persian campaign with Cyrus, and once again they were all cheered by the sight of the Pontus, here, he said, I want to found you a great city, a home for the overseas Greeks, a bulwark of Hellenism against the barbarians on the dark shores of the Great Sea. At first, this plan was warmly applauded. With trained oxen, the confines of the city that were to be drawn, was being drawn, when... Ah, this is terrible, I should not tell it. But I insisted, and at last, from my friend, the sad tale came out. There had slipped into that noble band of Greeks an unreliable soothsayer, a despicable sorcerer. We recall his name to cover it with infamy, and if you will allow me, I will now expectorate. At this, all three Greeks spat in unison. His name was Solanus of Arcadia. He had cozened up to Cyrus and extracted much money from him, and he did not care about the founding of a noble city, a bulwark of civilization. He wanted to return home and revel with his money. So he told the Hoplites that Xenophon was deceiving them, that he had no thought of building for them homes. No, he was planning to lead them back into the deserts of Asia, from which they had so recently and so narrowly escaped. And that sorcerer was a cunning man. Every time he consulted them, the entrails told the same story. They said, go home. So the great plan was defeated, or rather postponed for several generations, and Xenophon returned to Sparta, where, though broken-hearted over the failure of his project, he had a good time hunting and raising dogs and writing stories. In such a way, according to these Pontic Greeks, had the dream of a Hellenic city on the shores of the Black Sea been denied. This was, in many respects, a typical Greek tragedy. After some prodding, Bonsal insisted that if these claims were true, then they would certainly trump all others, being the oldest claims that existed. He then left the company of the Pontic Greeks, and met later with Venizelos. Bonsal recorded the conversation he had with the Greek Premier, saying... A few hours later, Venizelos came back and thanked us warmly for bridging over the gap between Hoover and the Euxine Pontus. But I have told them that I cannot claim the south shore of the Black Sea, as my hands are quite full with Thrace and Anatolia. I told them to, Go home, make all the money you can, and send it back to the mother country. If you do that, we shall always cherish you. And they went away well pleased. Then, as an afterthought, the Greek premier said, Often it seems to me wiser, and certainly more helpful, to have commercial marts rather than political colonies beyond the seas. But for the contributions that came from them in a steady stream, we could never have faced the financial strain of this cruel and most costly war. It was our merchants in Cairo and Constantinople, in Liverpool and in Norfolk, Virginia, who kept us afloat. Later, in March 1919, Bunsal will become somewhat disenchanted with the stubbornness and inflexibility of the Greek delegation, in respect to Albania, another troublesome frontier. Both are roving people, like most of the Balkan tribes, Bunsal wrote, adding that, Undoubtedly, the problem could be solved by an exchange of population and some slight frontier changes, but no one will accept either the one or the other. The Greeks will not yield a village or an inch of territory, And my friend, Albanian leader, Esad Pasha, says the plan infringes on the law of the mountains and contravenes the Code of Lex, which he says has been honoured by his people since the days of Moses, the lawgiver. This demonstrated how far back some individuals wished to trace their ancestry. They weighed this heritage against the new arrivals, be they Turks or Italians, or in some cases, in the Greek mind, invented nationalities like the Albanians, Macedonians, and Bulgarians, who, God bless them, were truly Greek at heart. Bunsal was confounded by the existence of so many nationalities in such a closed space, that being the Balkans, but it would perhaps be more accurate to say that he, like so many others, was confounded by the existence of the Balkans, full stop. Bunsal concluded, The region was undeniably a part of the Great Serbian Empire in the 13th century. Should it be restored to Belgrade now? Should California and New Mexico be restored to Spain or to Mexico? I don't know. I fancy a statute of limitations will have to be established. Of one thing I am certain. In both cases, the restoration would require the employment of large military forces. All would be well if friendly relations could be established between the disputants. But unfortunately, all the experts say this is impossible. On this point, at least, they are in full agreement. A statute of limitations will be useful indeed, but how far back or how recent should the limit be placed? When you had people justifying their statehood on the basis of what Moses did, or what the fall of Troy meant to them personally, you were bound to have problems, especially when that people were louder and less practically powerful than the nation which had since taken their place. This was a serious problem, not just with Greek claims, but with every power who attempted to petition the Paris Peace Conference's allied councils. Rarely were their claims straightforward, uncontroversial, or completely accurate. We have seen before how demographics and maps were manipulated to demonstrate certain facts, and this was true across all of Europe, beyond the Rhine. The Czech case at Tetchen, the Polish Silesia, the whatever is going on in the Baltic, Transylvania, Macedonia... Albania, Dalmatia, Fiume, Yugoslavia itself, if you happen to be a non-Serb, all of these cases and many others were enormously contentious, yet the Greek example sticks out precisely because, in Britain, the Greeks had an interested and sympathetic ear. Typically in the British case, the sympathy did not come from purely romantic ideas about ancient Greece, but from imperial interests. Together, it was imagined Britannia and its Hellenic partner could dominate the Mediterranean. Something which we need to bear in mind about the Great War is how unlike previous British foreign policy the conflict was. The British had never ceased to prop up the Ottoman Empire against the Russian. The Eastern question had led to the Crimean War in the 1850s. It had sank governments and led to a recasting of the Conservative Party under Benjamin Disraeli, as Britain's national honour was said to be at stake if she did not defend the Turks from the expanding Russians, who it was said wanted Constantinople and the Straits for the glory of the Tsar. The balance of power had led to an identification with Prussia and with German culture and with hostility towards France, Britain's major colonial rival. We know all this, of course, and we know that Sir Edward Grey's foreign policy before 1914 redefined British relationships for the rest of the 20th century. Still, it deserves repeating and it also deserves mention that the last time the British had waged war against the Ottomans, only to regret it immediately afterwards was when it had been in the name of that noble idea, Greek independence from Turkish rule in the 1820s. Throughout the initial phase of the Great War, until Lloyd George became Prime Minister in December 1916, Britain's war aims barely materialised, but with the new vitality Lloyd George invested into the government in the final half of the war, British statesmen found that they had more of an interest in imagining what the post-war order would look like. With that in mind, in March 1918, the Political Intelligence Department, or PID, was established with the mission of collecting, sifting and coordinating all political intelligence, and it came to serve as the foundations of the British negotiating team at the Paris Peace Conference. The Political Intelligence Department comprised on average a dozen experts, each with a regional speciality. Most of its staff were civilians doing temporary war work, augmented by some regular Foreign Office officials. In October 1918, as peace loomed, the Political Intelligence Department was reorganised to take on the full weight of preparing Britain's negotiating brief. The Southeastern European section was an important plank in this brief, and one of the experts assigned to it is a man we know very well indeed by this point, the Oxford graduate and rising star in the Foreign Office, Harold Nicholson. Harold Nicholson and his colleagues in the Southeastern Europe section were shaped by their studies, wherein they had acquired a comprehensive grounding in and love for the classics. One of Nicholson's colleagues spoke 15 languages, including the amalgamations in the Balkans like Bulgaro-Serb, Macedonian-Greek and Albanian-Serb, but this colleague's favourite was said to be Ancient Greek. A love of Hellenic culture, history and language was certainly a necessary requirement for Nicholson, who served on the Greek committee through the duration of spring 1919, and who managed to hand in the final report of that committee by the 8th of March due date to his immense pride. Another qualification for serving the interests of Greece was a straightforward hatred for everything Turkish, arguably the main opposing national group to Greek interests. As Nicholson confessed early in his memoirs, I confess that I regarded, and still regard, the Turkish tribe with acute distaste, they had destroyed much, and created nothing. This of course made it that much easier to discount the claims of the Turks, especially since pretty much everyone was doing this in spring 1919. Discussion in Paris revolved around not what shape the Turkish nation-state would take, but which allied power would hold Asia Minor as a mandatory power. There seemed little sympathy in reserve for Turkish interests, especially when Nicholson's section of the Political Intelligence Department was loudly supporting the Greek interests instead, and he was not the only one. As the historian Eric Goldstein wrote in his article, examining the British links to a Greater Greece idea, Nicholson was supported by some heavy intellectual muscle in the foreign office. Goldstein said, One other individual involved in the Greek negotiations deserves particular mention, Sir Eyre Crowe. One of the outstanding British diplomats of the era, he was the dynamo which dominated the British delegation at Paris. Lloyd George and the politicians may have decided policy at the highest level, but it was Crowe and his protégés from the political intelligence department who influenced the shape and texture of the settlement in the various technical committees in which most of the issues were settled. It was the Political Intelligence Department which formed the backbone of the British negotiating team at Paris. While the British delegation at the conference was vast and mostly decorative, these individuals held most of the key substantive positions. In a report written by Nicholson and others in December 1918, he and his colleagues in the South Eastern European section of the Political Intelligence Department revolved around the assumption the national self-determination would be the underlying principle of any settlement as it offered the best prospects of a permanent peace in southeastern europe and as such are the most desirable and advantageous from the point of view of british interests their ambitions for greece before the paris peace conference had even opened don't forget are something to behold according to the historian goldstein nicholson and his friends recommended That Greece be enlarged by receiving an Anatolian enclave centred in Smyrna. That Greece and Italy reach an agreement as the Dodecanese. That Greece should obtain all the Aegean islands, including the strategically placed islands of Imbros, Tenedos, Lemnos and Samothrace. That Britain should cede Cyprus to Greece and that northern Epirus up to the Voyusa should be annexed to Greece. But plans for Greece did not stop there. One of Nicholson's colleagues even believed that the Turks should be evicted from Constantinople and a mandate take root. For a while it was rumoured that this mandate would fall into American hands, an idea which Wilson remained opposed to. Greece undoubtedly benefited from a general Phil Hellenic feeling among the central figures in Britain's negotiating team, incited in part by strident Turkophobia, Goldstein wrote, adding that Nicholson, commenting on Greek claims in Asia Minor, believed that we will be morally lacking if we allow this sensitive and progressive civilization to be again subordinated to the Turks. Nicholson later wrote that for the Turks I had and have no sympathy whatsoever. Long residence at Constantinople has convinced me that behind this mask of indolence, the Turk conceals impulses of the most brutal savagery. Nicholson's views were not unrepresentative. His chief, Sir Eyre Crowe, saw the expulsion of the Turks from Europe as a vital aim of British policy, observing that The policy of allowing the Turk to remain in Europe is so contrary to our most important interests and so certain to involve the continuance of all the abomination associated with the rule of the Turks that we cannot afford to treat this as a matter of just humouring Muslim feelings. But this anti-Turkish sentiment did not even stop with the political intelligence department. It was also felt in the highest echelons of Whitehall. Lord Curzon, most famous for his Curzon line, was also chairman of the Eastern Committee, and he observed that the presence of the Turks in Europe has been a source of unmitigated evil to everybody concerned. Indeed, the record is one of misrule, oppression, intrigue and massacre almost unparalleled in the history of the Eastern world. The atrocity of genocide done to the Armenians had not helped the Ottoman case, nor did the fact that, as Christian minorities within the former empire, Armenians and Greeks had often intermarried or worked alongside each other. As the British received their requests for a greater Greek empire, the US delegation was bombarded with urgent requests from the Armenians to take their ancient kingdom on as an American mandate. Nor should it be thought that the British were alone in their sympathy to the quest of redeeming Greece. Redeeming being a common phrase used by greco diplomats, which indicated the near-religious sense of mission they attached to the cause. In his opening speech for the Greek Committee in February, the chair of the committee, Jules Cambon, exclaimed that the peace conference offered, "...the best means of satisfying the ancient claims of the Hellenic nation, and of, at least, completing the work of independence begun by the liberal nations of Europe a century ago. The Greek bug was therefore infectious even before the war had ended and the Paris Peace Conference entered its most intensive phase. The factor which arguably pushed it over the edge, though, were the actions of the famed Greek premier, Venizelos. If Greece had sympathisers in Britain then Venizelos had adoring fans. I've at last got Venizelos' autograph, wrote one of Nicholson's colleagues, Alan Leeper, in May 1919, when the Greek premier finally invited him to dine, which was a favourite tactic of Venizelos's when cozying up to the British delegation. Nicholson was open in his praise of Venizelos' presentation of Greece to the Council of Ten in early February. He called it extremely good, even on its second day. It seemed the only highlight in a sea of other deputations from less interesting people. Nor were Brits the most susceptible. The American jack of all trades we met earlier, Stephen Bunsall, noted that when Venizelos comes in, they say, I must be careful, this fellow can conjure a bird out of a tree. But then it was not merely charm that pulled the British delegates in it was the fact that it would be immensely beneficial to have a strong pro-British Greece in the Mediterranean, as the Political Intelligence Department underlined in a report sent out in mid-March, which said, Monsieur Venizelos has merited our complete support. So long, therefore, as Venizelos remains in power, little anxiety needs to be entertained as to the internal conditions of Greece or her relations to this country. On the other end of things, Nicholson wrote to Air Crow that a Greece without Venizelos could mean disaster. I need not elaborate the disastrous effects which any weakening of Mr. Venizelos's position would have upon Greece itself and General Entente interests in the eastern Mediterranean. Venizelos did much to encourage the view among the Allies that, if his requests were denied, his government would be toppled and a pro-German monarchy would take root, as it had done in fact, ...in the early phase of the war. Nicholas Politis, a Greek ally of Venizelos and one of his many underlings... ...made this case to Stephen Bonsal in mid-February... ...when it was rumoured the Allies were contemplating the alteration of Turkey's borders... ...perhaps extending them into Europe. This plan, of course, did not last. It had only been floated in a meeting to solve the ethnic problems in Thrace... ...but the Greeks got wind of it... ...and Venizelos, as he did frequently, sent his subordinate to argue a difficult case which would help preserve Venizelos' image as an easy-going, always pleasant individual. Bonsal recorded how nicolas Politis, almost certainly appointed by Venizelos for this task, represented the Greek case to him here. What I am about to say is not authorised by Monsieur Venizelos, but it is so important that I think you will pardon my indiscretion, if it is one. If this plan is approved, the final result would be the fall of the present government in Athens and the return to power of King Constantine and the pro-Germans. Even now these people are saying that we have failed to secure the benefits we fought for and were fully justified in demanding. And Venizelos was not above making such petitions himself, particularly as time went on in the conference and he felt Greece's interests were becoming swamped by other distractions, above all from late April, the Italians. We have spent more than enough time on the Italian angle already, but something we've not really touched on is the Treaty of saint John de maurienne signed by British, French and Italians in 1917. This treaty, which was crafted in late September 1917 when Russia was teetering on the brink of collapse, was designed to refine Allied aims and the division of spoils through the Middle East in particular with Anatolia, coming under the microscope. Under this treaty, Italy would have been entitled to annex the southwestern quarter of Asia Minor, centred on Smyrna, where she would possess extensive rights and a sphere of influence. Now, if you think this treaty sounds a bit problematic for Greek interests, then you'd be absolutely correct. Greek irredentists were enraged at what was perceived as an Allied sellout to Italy, especially since Greece had entered the war on the Allied side earlier in 1917. This great conflict between what the Greeks believed they were entitled to by right of history and culture and what the Italians believed they were entitled to by right of treaty reared its ugly head throughout 1919 when Venizelos did the rounds. Indeed, we will recall that in the first week of May there was great concern regarding Italian intentions for Anatolia. It was invariably feared that Italy would launch a military expedition to Smyrna or that she would get wind of Greek plans for such an expedition and leak them to the Turks, Italian Foreign Minister Sanino, who had negotiated that treaty in 1917 which granted Italy these rights, felt understandably aggrieved that his country was once again, as it was with the 1915 Treaty of London, being ignored because it suited the Allies to do so. This only added to the sense of dissatisfaction which the Italians felt, particularly as it became plain that Fiume would not be theirs. The Allies feared throughout the first week of May that Italy would launch a fait accompli for Smyrna. Even when her statesmen returned in time to watch the Germans receive the peace treaty on the 7th of May, there was still much distrust and anxiety in the Allied camp about what the Italians would do. And then of course there was the increasingly active petitions of the Greek Premier Venizelos, who approached Stephen bonsall in late April about the stalemate and the sense of urgency which the Greeks felt about Asia Minor. Venizelos said in this case. Flesh and blood, not even merely Greek flesh and blood, can stand further delay in the approach towards a settlement of our problems. For six months now, we have had 250,000 men mobilised, and in the field, at the request, I might even say at the order, of the Allies. This has cost us millions upon millions of drachmas, which we haven't got, which we have borrowed and which we will have to repay. Mobilised, yes, but mobilised for what? We are not told... Wait and see, whisper the members of the Supreme Council, but of course, quite unofficially. Apparently we are not mobilised to take over Constantinople, although that has been our dream for centuries, or even a large slice of Thrace. Lloyd George points significantly to Smyrna, and the fat lands around it, where there is such a large, purely Greek population. There a great future awaits you, the Prime Minister insists, but within the hour, he is urging Italy to jump in there on our right flank and you can't help concluding that he has earmarked Adelia and the rich nearby districts for the Italians. What are we mobilised for? I inquire. And he answers jovially, Have a little patience. You will learn very soon. Be assured the council is not neglecting your problems. I can wait, but it is quite clear that the Greek treasury can't stand the strain, nor, as a matter of fact, can our soldiers. Last September the morale of our men was excellent. They were eager to fight and go anywhere, but now they want to go home to get away from the stinking camps. Both the Italians and the Greeks had a case for Asia Minor, they believed, but only one could win, and in the last phase of the war, compromise was given the short shrift in favour of an approach to the great powers, who it was believed would be more sympathetic. The frustration of Italian claims over the course of the conference is a fact that we're familiar with, of course, but it helps to explain how, in the microcosm of the Greek Committee, Nicholson came to view the Italians with such disdain. As they came to fear that the Allies would abandon their treaties with them in favour of the stronger ethnic Greek claims, the Italian delegates became more stubborn and difficult throughout the spring, reflected above all in Vittorio Orlando's gradual retreat from the conference altogether. But was Greece truly blessed with the stronger claim? Venizelos certainly believed so, but the state he laid claim to appeared more like something out of a dream world than a possible nation-state. This Greece of the two continents and five seas, wrote Margaret Macmillan, was a country turned inside out, a fringe of land around waters it did not control. It would have enemies, Turkey certainly and probably Bulgaria, both of which were down to contribute land and probably also Italy. Yes, agreed Venizelos, the shape was inconvenient, but as he said, for 30 centuries Greeks had lived under these conditions and had been able to surmount great catastrophes to prosper and to increase. What Venizelos was less open about was the fact that Greece proper contained roughly 5 million people. This was hardly enough to occupy and police the sprawling connection of lands he was proposing. Venizelos simply avoided this difficult fact, as well as others, like the high emigration rate among the young men in Greece, to better opportunities abroad, or the rampant poverty which had plagued his country, or the terrible divisions which had resulted in a civil war as recently as 1917, as Greece stumbled under his leadership into the war on the Allied side. It should also be emphasised as well that some portions of land which Venizelos claimed were virtual non-entities in the conception of Europe that did the rounds in London or Paris. And by that I mean, to the big three, the Balkans was confusing enough. But what even was Albania, and what to do with Macedonia? If truth is to be found in Macedonia, wrote Stephen Bunsall, it is at the bottom of a very, very deep well. Certainly, I have never plumbed it. This, of course, explains the need for a Greek committee in the first place, but as Nicholson served as Britain's technical advisor on that committee, to British delegates Sir Eric Crow and Canadian Premier Sir Robert Borden, one could easily have predicted that a pro-Greek decision would emerge. Yet Nicholson was by no means in the majority when he declared in mid-March, The Greek claims on Asia Minor are justified. Indeed, he had to factor in the Italians, who, somewhat hilariously, announced that they had been so insulted by the decisions made so far in Asia Minor that whenever Asia Minor came up for discussion in the Greek committee, they would remain completely silent. This protest was rendered ineffective the next day, though, when the Italian stenographer for the meeting helpfully recorded the minutes of the meeting as per usual, recording in the process the same volume of Italian interjections as had occurred several times before. With the Italian exit from the conference in late April, the Greeks were given a brand new opportunity to have their way in Asia Minor. Indeed, as we have seen, from the 6th of May in an early meeting of the Big Three, the Allied leaders outdid one another in their enthusiasm for the landing of Greek soldiers at Smyrna to preempt what was feared as a similar Italian plot or a cunning sabotage. Some attempt ought to be made to proceed further in regard to Turkey, Lloyd George insisted, otherwise the Italians would establish themselves there. The Prime Minister then added that it ought to be decided that Monsieur Venizelos should be allowed to land two or three divisions at Smyrna to protect his fellow countrymen in Turkey. And Wilson agreed with this, pointing out that the report of the Greek Commission was now unanimously in favour of giving this area to Greece. Clemenceau said he was ready to allow Venizelos to send troops and Wilson, according to the Minutes, echoed this eagerness by claiming undoubtedly that he was ready. When Clemenceau brought up the saint John de maurienne Treaty, which granted Italy rights to the region of Smyrna, Lloyd George challenged whether Italy was still entitled to allude to this treaty, noting that it had been conditional on Italy playing an adequate part in the war against Turkey and, had also, been subject to the agreement on Russia. Lloyd George then asked for a decision that Venizelos might be authorised to send troops on board ship to Smyrna to be kept there ready for landing in case of necessity. Wilson, apparently eager to trump Lloyd George's Grecophilia, asked, Why should they not be landed at once? The men do not keep, in good condition, on board ship. Lloyd George agreed once more. After this performance, which we did touch on in our very large episode that covered the 1st to the 6th of May, it would be fair to note that Wilson was the more pro-Greek of the American delegation, but there was some among that crowd who viewed Greek acquisitions in Asia Minor as a recipe for constant war. This had been decided, with the result that, even when Italy returned, her interests in Smyrna were ignored. On the afternoon of the 10th of May, Italy was absent when Venizelos petitioned to the Big Three for the umpteenth time. According to the Minutes, the Allies and Venizelos first wanted to keep the Italians in the dark, but eventually they agreed to inform them on Monday the 12th of May, that this expedition was going ahead. By then, Venizelos said, the Italians would not be able to hamper the plan or leak the truth of its intentions. Some 14,000 Greek soldiers were to take part in the landing, which would set sail on Tuesday the 13th of May under escort of four British battleships reaching the coast of Smyrna, probably late in the evening of Wednesday the 14th of May. So it was that on Monday the 12th of May, Vittorio Orlando was informed about the imminent landing of three Greek divisions with British and French assistance. We cannot tell for certain how tense the atmosphere was when the Smyrna landing was brought up that morning, but judging from Vittorio Orlando's short, one-sentence answers, which were recorded in the minutes, we can imagine the Italian reception was pretty frosty. The Greek issue itself was only brought up after about half an hour arguing over reparations, ...and the qualities which would help the Allies determine the size of reparations coming from Austria. Predictably, the Italians sought a larger figure than Lloyd George felt willing to give in the Austrian case. This tension meant that the sense of goodwill, if it had been there to begin with, had left the room by the time Smyrna was discussed. Orlando did little other than correct the Allies on their information. There were two Italian battleships in the region of Smyrna, not seven, and he had no record of Italian landings in other regions... Orlando indicated that before further discussion was held on the matter, he would have to consult Senino, who, Orlando said, knew all about the matter. The discussion moved on to the familiar question of the Austrian and Hungarian treaties thereafter. When the Allies reassembled at 3.30pm that afternoon on the 12th of May, Wilson ventured to ask what Orlando had decided about the Smyrna expedition. Orlando declared that he... Accepted in principle, and that he thought, it might be preferable to leave the troops of the principal powers on shore and not to withdraw the British, French and Italian detachments pending the final decision as to the disposal of Smyrna. That is the only alteration I ask for. Wilson and Lloyd George both interjected to claim that the forces they would be using were small, ranging from 50 to 200 men, and that the Greeks would be in command. Sanino, who was also present during this meeting, piped up to note that, nonetheless, the venture would still have the character of an Allied expedition, and the Italians should therefore be part of it. Orlando then said that he would not insist, apparently as a kind of olive branch, and when Sanino asked whether the ships were ready, he got the answer from Lloyd George that, the decision has been taken more than a week ago, perhaps a sly dig at the Italian absence on the 6th of May, when indeed, as we saw, the landing had been decided upon. The Turks, Clemenceau said, would be given 12 hours notice, and according to the minutes, in the final conclusion for the meeting, it was agreed that the Italians would be entitled to land a small detachment of their own. Here at least, the Italians had won a kind of moral victory. They certainly would not be entitled to have their rights confirmed as per the 1917 St. John de Morienne Treaty, but they would at least be visible when the city was formally seized from the Turks for the Greeks. Speaking of the Turks, the Allies had spent such a long time pondering the reaction of the Italians that only minimal attention had been given to the power which formerly owned the city of Smyrna. This was not such a big deal, the Big Three claimed, and they had to act quickly, for Turkish soldiers were already reported to be firing on defenseless Greek and Christian citizens, and they had to be stopped. Twelve hours' notice was more than enough for a government and people that behaved like that. It was far more, in fact, than they deserved. So it was that on the 13th of May 1919, the flotilla left the Greek port of Cavella and made its way across the Hellespont. For all intents and purposes, it seemed like the Greeks were finally going home. While it was not the official fulfilment of his ambitions, at least not yet, Venizelos must have been buoyed at the Allied decision to intervene here and effectively hand Smyrna over to him. It was, by several measurements, The most enthusiastic and the most active and unified the Allies had been over any question that was brought up in the Paris Peace Conference. Certainly it's the only instance I have found so far, other than perhaps Russia, where the Allies actually sent military forces during the course of the Peace Conference and where they all agreed at the same time as to the end goal. By placing a piece of the former Turkish Empire under the Greek flag, even if only temporarily, Venizelos could demonstrate the civilised and united nature of the Greek people and hopefully pave the way for further petitions at the Paris Peace Conference down the line where the permanent annexation of the historic city would be formalised and Greek expansion confirmed. Yet, as any modern map of the region shows us, Venizelos was not destined to be successful. Macmillan wrote that, at that moment of triumph at the peace conference, Venizelos lit a fuse that led to the catastrophic destruction of ancient Greek communities in Turkey and an enduring hostility that still exists to this day between Greece and Turkey. The key question was thus, where did it all go wrong for Venizelos and his greater Greek dreams? The answer presented itself in the opening moments of that planned Greek landing on the 15th of May 1919. The mood of jubilation among Greek troops was suddenly swapped, inexplicably it seemed, for feelings of anger, suspicion and a strong burning desire for revenge.